Hello, welcome to Herpetological Highlights, episode 40. We are on our 40th episode. Uh, what journey it's been. Um, I am Tom Major, and joining me, as always, is the co-host of the podcast, the man himself, Ben Marshall. Um, we are sort of wannabe herpetologists, aren't we, Ben? And we're doing a podcast all about oh, reptiles and amphibians. Oh, speak for yourself there, mate. <laughs> Steady. <laughs> Steady, right. let's not go throwing around the H word. <laughs> There's nothing worse than referring to yourself as a herpetologist. Um, although, maybe, I don't actually think it's that bad. But Ben, you don't like it, do you? You hate it. <laughs> don't like it out of principle, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does seem a bit like, I don't know. I don't know. But well, anyway. that, I don't want to be pigeonholed. That's the other thing. Well, you have been. Oh. No one's ever going to take you seriously in the rodent world again. Oh man! What if I want yeah. to study rats? If you want to oh, study no, rats, see, my, my way in is uh, prey species. Mate, that rat-laden ship has sailed. <laughs> <laughs> You've made your bed, and it's filled with snakes. <laughs> oh, right. So uh, yeah, this by week we're talking about the pet trade. Uh, this was an episode which is requ- requested by one of our patrons, Sammy Assad who is an all-around good dude that we are both friends with. Uh, we met Sammy when we were both in Thailand together. Sammy was a uh, radio tracker of common and spitting cobras, and now he's a PhD student at... Uh, I wrote the name down because it's really weird. Museum for Natukund, which I think means Museum for Nature in German, in Berlin. He studies uh, the effects of logging on herpetofauna communities, which is obviously really valuable work. And he was kind enough to be our patron, and so he requested that we do an episode on the pet trade, and uh, yeah, here we are. Here we are. With several papers, a few papers about the pet trade, hopefully going from uh, it occurring in countries and taking it all the way through to what can possibly happen at the other end, right? I feel like we're what? going on a, we're following the, the trajectory, the pathway of a pet traded animal. Yeah, well, we're following probably the worst case scenario for a pet traded animal, I oh, would imagine. Yes. Well, that's where <laughs> import- a lot of the research goes. You, there's not much uh, impetus to research uh, successful and above board pet trade stuff because no. it's not a problem that needs to be fixed as such. No, it's true. Maybe there should be more, though, so that we could have a nice counter to actually like talk about some potential benefits to, I don't know, something like well being, I could imagine, is pretty strong. But. Um, for this oh, podcast, yeah, yeah there's, there's stuff on there is stuff on that, you know, hmm. best best care practices, things like that. Yeah, well, I mean, like uh, the well being of humankind, but oh. more, than, more, but um, like I was having a bad day, but then I came home and my snake was chilling there. It made me feel better, sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, you I shouldn't you. mock that. You shouldn't mock that. That kind wasn't of stuff. mocking. Oh, that okay. wasn't mocking. It may okay, have sounded good. it, but it genuinely wasn't. <laughs> Sorry, Ben, you're you're so embittered and sarcastic the rest of the time. Sometimes it's difficult to distinguish when you're... <laughs> I apologize. No, that was hundred percent genuine. 100%. Yeah, I I saw a really interesting talk actually um, about foraging on the seashore this week, um, and about sort of the well, it was about foraging in Wales and sort of the reasons why people do it and. Um, also the kind of uh, benefits to human well-being. It was really interesting. And I think uh, it's one of the reasons I found 
this paper, uh, well, the first paper we're going to talk about, so good, is because uh, it really gets into like the human element. It's actually a social science paper more than anything else, um, which I think is quite quite interesting and a, a good angle for conservation papers to take. And I know a lot of them do, but I just don't think we really focus on it very often in the podcast. No, well, we're number one, we're not that way trained, so it's harder to get to the nitty-gritty of these papers and really get the full worth out of them. And, uh, yeah, I feel like our interest goes more towards the animals and less towards people. Yeah, so it does. We're yeah, just going to be disinclined does. to look at them, which is why we're, it's good we're doing it this time, because it is a the whole pet trade thing is a very much a human... Uh, What's the right word? You know, it doesn't happen without humans. Phenomenon. Yeah, exactly. So any sort of problems associated with it or solutions or whatever has to come from people and has to quite heavily involve people. And therefore, the research has to be that also that way orientated at times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, before we get into it, I think we should just say thanks to Sami Assad and also... Uh, thanks to all our other patrons for helping us run the podcast. It's really great. We're very grateful. And uh, yeah, if you want to be a patron, you can contribute and then you get to pick the topic of an episode. And uh, Sammy's asked us to speak about the contentious issue of the pet trade. So cheers, Sammy, for picking possibly the most difficult thing to discuss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the hardest one no, to it's, keep it's, light. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good, though, because we wouldn't have done it otherwise. Because no. of fear and cowardice. Yeah, we would have avoided it because... No one likes talking about awkward situations. Yeah. Well, should, well, shall we just get going then? Yeah, let's do it. So the first paper is by Robinson, Griffiths, Fraser, Raharamalala, Roberts and St. John. Supplying the wildlife trade... My voice went then. Supplying the wildlife trade as a livelihood strategy in a biodiversity hotspot, ecology and society. So, um, yeah... Uh, I actually uh, met Freya St. John this week, bizarrely. Oh, I'm jealous. Yeah, well, I mean, I was in the same seminar as her. We kind of like all introduced ourselves, but yeah, it was cool. Um, so yeah, uh, this paper is all about people in Madagascar who are basically collecting reptiles and amphibians and other animals for supplying the wildlife trade. And it's basically looking at whether or not it's uh, beneficial, a good source of income, etc., etc., and kind of also taking into account what they're collecting and um, the other jobs they're doing, that that sort of stuff. Yeah, trying to get a valuation of how important it is in Madagascar or in this particular part of Madagascar for livelihoods, but also, you know, they, they dip into attitudes towards wildlife and attitudes towards uh, habitat and things along those lines. So it's really yeah. trying to get at the context and the motivations behind wildlife collection in a super biodiverse, or, you know, one of the most biodiverse areas of the planet. Yeah. And, so, yeah. So generally, there's this flow of um, animal products, like live animal products from low-income countries which are biodiverse to more wealthy countries in Europe uh, and America. Um, that's kind of the general trade direction, but that's not necessarily always the case. Uh, I know that 
there's a big market for American turtles in China. There was something came out recently mm. about that. And um, certainly when I was in China, I saw a lot of red sliders everywhere um, for sale. So it's not universally, like it's not unilateral, the trade, but it is um, unilateral. It, is that the right word? Yeah. Uh, yes. One, one way, I think it means. I know when something makes a uni- unilateral Unidirectional. Decision, Unidirectional, yeah, okay, yeah. I think unilateral just means like one, I don't know, I shouldn't have said it. Anyway, um, <laughs> so basically, yeah, the, the there's like, there's various um, there's various things that are out there to protect wild animals, uh, or at least sort of um, regulate the trade. So there's the Convention on Biological Diversity, which is designed to support sustainable use of wildlife and associated products. Um, there's also CITES, which we talked about a lot, the, Conven- the Convention for International Trade in Endangered Species, which um, offers various levels of protection and also serves to restrict trade on uh, species which are perceived to be under threat. Uh, that's kind of like a, you can be, there's different append- appendices and one, is one the most strict or three the most strict? I can't remember which way around it goes, but um, essentially if you get labelled as the most strict CITES then trade is pretty much forbidden um and then CITES the middle one is like you can trade in that animal if it's captive bred um or something like that and then there's another less strict one which is basically just like keep an eye on it see what's see what's happening yeah it's also worth mentioning that CITES isn't pretty isn't uh what's god my words I've got a complete lack of words today um, <laughs> usually you have the best words because <laughs> we've got there's a couple of papers out there that show how many species are actually covered by it and you've got 10,000 plus species of reptiles and CITES only covers 8% of those oh really? so there's a huge scope for just species either not included in them or not uh, properly assessed and when we're talking about amphibians you're looking at 98% of species uh, not regulated so 92% for reptiles 98% for amphibians so it's flawed but it's also there's not a lot of money to actually enforce it no um, no not at all i mean there's you need a lot of uh information a lot of infrastructure to record these things to keep up with things you got all the border stuff i mean the amount of trade going on is already absurd so to try and uh keep keep tap, tabs on that Super difficult. I mean, take a guess at the number of reptiles imported into the EU over 10 years between 2004 and 2014. Oh, uh, was it in the millions? Oh, yeah. 25 million. Oh, pretty damn good. Yeah, twenty, pretty much 21 million reptiles. Oh, wow. Well, my guess is that close. I wonder if I actually read that at some point. <laughs> <laughs> that is a lot of animals. And yes, a lot. You, that is a serious undertaking. I do not envy anybody trying to keep up with that sort of uh, flow. So there are some things, well, there's some like sort of conservation ideas to prevent over-exploitation of these uh, wildlife resources. Um, there's payment for ecosystem services, which is money for keeping elements of the ecosystem in- intact. And there's environmental steward- stewardship schemes, which... Um, kind of promote protection of the natural environment by encouraging conservation and sustainable practice and kind of allowing an income from the land and from the animals, but um, encouraging it in a sustainable way because um, 
obviously overexploitation of a resource is bad for the animals, but it's also bad for the people. If if you just completely annihilate all the animals there and sell them, then you aren't going to be able to continue having that trade into the future, which is obviously going to be negative for, for the people collecting them. Um, however, yeah, so these schemes aren't always successful. There's an example in argan oil, which I didn't really know about. I'd heard of it, but um, I didn't know what, what it was What even is for. argan oil? I'll tell you. So it's oil from the argan tree. Um, it comes from the kernels and sometimes the fruit. And the argan tree is an endemic species in southwest Morocco's like semi-desert Sioux region. Um, and since the 1990s, it was basically discovered as this sort of miracle product in cosmetics and food. Apparently, I don't know, it must be delicious. It must. It makes nice. your food really beautiful. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, I mean... Dash of argan oil and it turns a, turns a cheese toasty into... I don't know, something that looks better than a cheese toasty. Well, given that we live in an age of Instagram, I wouldn't be surprised if that actually was the case. But I don't think that is the case. I think I think it separately makes things either delicious or beautiful. Um, Beautifully anyway, delicious. Basically, this, this argan oil, because it's achieved massive um, popularity, it could have been a poster child for sustainable use in Morocco uh, because... You know, it has potential. It's making a lot of money in a previously poor area. And so these this group of scientists, I've lost the reference because I don't have any internet, but I will put it in the show notes. So apologies if it's your paper. Uh, but essentially, this big argon boom has had some benefits to the local area. For example, um, education in the region is improved, especially for girls with the influx of money, which is obviously incredibly good and is a really really direct indicator of development um educate women and everything else tends to follow generally speaking at least that's what i remember from my geography degree and then um that's the pot name positive and obviously people are making more money however um booming argon prices haven't improved the um conservation of the forest and it might have actually increased forest degradation because for whatever reason people having more money has meant that they are burning more wood, they're no longer buying butane, they're burning wood from the argon trees. Um, they're also, because the fruit's worth so much money, they're not being very careful when they bash it down. So they're knocking it down with sticks and that's potentially reducing and damaging the trees and reducing the um, the yield the next year. And um, people are also able to afford more goats for their herds, which there's some evidence that the goats are grazing more harshly on the argan trees in the seasons where there's no fruit. And the goats, I mean, they can get up in the canopy. You know what goats are like. Everyone's seen ladder goat. Um, oh, man. It's all those climbing goat. goats, you can't stop yeah. them. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there's actually more pressure on the trees. So these, um, these kind of um, stewardship schemes are a good idea but they they don't always work as intended so it's important to realize basically the picture we're painting is that um there is potential for sustainable use and things like that and obviously yeah if you can provide an income then that's great and people will potentially utilize it but it is flawed um there was a there was a brilliant uh brilliant sentence in another another paper i wrote by duffy et al in 2014 it's basically a a comment piece um and it, and I it summarizes for me how how sort of perfectly interwoven this is. It's, yes, it is a natural environment problem, but it is very much a human problem as well. And the the quote I pulled out was, 
If it is assumed that poverty drives poaching, we must also recognize that poverty is a multidimensional. It uh, sorry, that poverty is multidimensional, encompassing lack of power, prestige, voice, and an inability to shape one's future. And that, to me, that sums it up absolutely spot on. I mean, multidimensional is just nail on the head in terms of this. You just gave an example there with all these different aspects all factoring in. You can't uh, fix these problems in isolation or set up these problems, uh, set up a solution to these problems without taking into account cultural context and the sort of overriding drivers of why people are in these situations to begin with. And that was, an, yeah. they went on to give a couple of examples in that where they're showing that uh, illegal trade is as much driven by things outside of these local communities, like driven by demand and other countries' uh, cultures or... Uh, uh, what's the right word for... I suppose attitudes, um, traditions, things like that. You know, like the whole uh, rhino horn and traditional medicine thing. There was an example yeah. in, in Yemen where rhino horns were used for... Uh, dagger handles I believe it was and there was another one where Taiwan was bringing it in as well but you get bans in Taiwan and suddenly the rhino horns it changes that dynamic so the reduced poaching of rhinos during that time and uh, same with the Yemen Yemen had a sort of economic downturn chopped out the demand and then the poaching dropped as well so there's no way you can separate where these things are being consumed and from where they're being uh, actually developed or pulled out of the natural environment. It's, it's, it's so interwoven uh, that looking at specific case studies in isolation, yes, it's super useful, but you've got to remember that it's tied, tied to a much bigger global uh, global market and goes all the way back to what you said at the beginning with more economic economically developed countries having a pretty dramatic impact in other parts of the world just by what's the hot product at the time yeah and hence i mean yeah like your like, oil <laughs> yeah you, you and i mean the example of rhino horn is the perfect example because um the main the main markets are in asia and as asian economies are booming obviously demand is going to increase and then often there is an associated increase in awareness um but yeah, like you say, it's a global phenomenon and it's no different than the demand in America for animals and then they're being harvested in Madagascar. Like it's exactly the yeah. same. It's exactly the yeah, same it, driver. It can um, be really sort of uh, inconspicuous little things that switch them on. They gave another example of uh, some some politician uh, mentioning oh, some ridiculous reason that he sort of overcame his cancer or something and and it just basically overnight developed a market for this certain product it was in vietnam that's what it was it was in vietnam for so an american politician said that something helped no 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 it was a it was it was a vietnamese politician oh, right. uh linking rhino horn to health benefits and basically the price for rhino horn went from uh 65,000 per kilogram to 750,000 per kilogram. No, sorry, 75,000 per kilogram. So you got this $10,000 increase just on the back of people making comments and it and it sort of getting into the culture and getting into the um, 
zeitgeist or whatever. It's, it's just being that fashionable thing. Mm. You can fully empathise with people, though. I mean, you know, cancer's really scary. And if a politician was like, oh, yeah, running home cure my cancer, that's going to convince a lot of people anywhere. Yeah. I mean, that's but that's exactly the point, is to cast these aside as spurious reasons isn't good enough because they're having a real world impact so they must be taken into account and looked at seriously yeah mm-hmm. so um yeah back to this paper uh this one's focusing on madagascar as we said uh it has a very rich wildlife trade particularly reptiles and amphibians which are exported live um to supply markets for the pet trade um in the 1990s, they exported more chameleons than anyone else, with about 40% of the world's But to be fair, not from. many other places have the opportunity to export large quantities of chameleon. It's very true. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, there's lots of different chameleons in <laughs> uh, Eastern Africa. In, in, yeah, in mainland very Africa, few places. yeah. yeah. But... Um, and yeah, golden mantella frogs in 1998 were up to 32,000 were um, exported. Obviously, that's a species now which I think is critically endangered. Um, mm-hmm. It's up there. Um, yeah, so since the 90s, it has decreased. They're not exporting as many live animals as they were. Um, but still, it's one of the largest global exporters of CITES-listed amphibians. But as you've said, that doesn't really mean, mean anything because most of them aren't listed. Um, and also reptiles as well. Um and there are quotas for a number of species because Madagascar is part of the CITES agreement. And as we said, this paper is investigating the kind of livelihoods of people which rely on this trade, how profitable it is. And um, yeah, it takes place in a region called Moramanga, which is located on a plateau between the Antanarivo, which is in the Central Highlands, and the East Coast. Um, and the East Coast is famous for being like exceptionally biodiverse. It's the kind of wet foresty bit, isn't it? Um, mm. And Moramanga is this kind of... Um, selection of villages with a big sort of main town in the center. Um, the reason it was selected for this study is because it's got good road links, uh, it's a local hub, it's near the capital, and it's also close, as I said, to the biodiverse eastern region. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a potential hotbed for actually getting this sort of data. Which yeah, definitely. Is you, you are looking at wildlife traders and collectors. You don't want to go to a place where they're so difficult to find that you're not going to get anything. And also they went so somewhere where it was outside of a protected area because it's all legal what they're doing, too. or at least yeah. for the most part. It, yeah, we'll talk about, there's a slight bit of illegality, but it's mostly completely legal what these people are doing. So um, yeah, they didn't want to go and do it somewhere clandestine because obviously that that's just really awkward and um, that's a different kind of study. Um, and I think, yeah, just in the interests yeah. of, there's obviously not baseline data for somewhere which isn't illegal. So, you know, start with the legal trade, I think, is quite a sensible approach. Um, mm. Yeah, so they they house they did household questionnaires, um, both systematic, so walking through villages and selecting every however many houses. And then once they were talking to people, they also did snowball surveying, which I heard for the first time this week, but is basically where you use leads to um, find more people. And they just did that to gather data. They couldn't do stats on that stuff because it wasn't systematic, um, but just to kind of get information. And um, yeah, should we talk about the information they gathered? Uh, yeah, I think we just dive straight into the results because really at the end of the day, it was a series of questionnaires um, and the results of what we're here to talk about. 
Yeah. Yes. So um, um, I think top top billing is getting a hold of what people are doing to sustain themselves in this sort of area, livelihoods, and where does wildlife collecting come in uh, livelihoods? And what was it? Six sort of livelihood categories they had. There was yeah. Cultivation, livestock keeping, wildlife trapping, of course, hunter gathering, farm labor, and non-farm labor. Non-farm labor was. Uh, you know, other, other, other stuff, basically. Cleaning, doing laundry, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so each household was asked to rank how important uh, trapping was to income and their livelihood. And as it turns out, what was it? Where, where, have, my, where have my numbers gone? I've lost my numbers. Well, okay, so there I've we got go. a few numbers. 13% had some level of wildlife trading uh, involved in their livelihood and their income. So that's out of 240 houses across 16 different villages. 13% with some some level of gathering animals. Yeah. But of those, um, so there was 32 people that said, or 32 households that collected animals, um, 13 of which collected reptiles and amphibians and 19 collected invertebrates only so um 5.4 percent of households seemed to collect reptiles and amphibians and then more were collecting um invertebrates like butterflies stick insects crickets and scorpions um mm. and like you say people were mostly doing a few different informal jobs which um came as a surprise to me i was quite ignorant of the fact that that's a really common livelihood strategy apparently it's the same in um sub-saharan africa as well where people are kind of they don't have one main job they're just kind of informally doing lots of different jobs um and these people were collecting reptiles and amphibians seasonally during the rainy season which is november to april um the legal season is actually february to april but um there's not really any enforcement as far as i could tell from reading this paper or if there is it's patchy uh so what that means is that they're not really uh, adhering to the collection uh, time they tend to go november to april when it's only permitted february to april um, well and the trick is they're doing that because that's when it rains and where animals are actually going to be easier to find and grab it's exactly what we do isn't so it when you're looking for snakes yeah <laughs> yes yeah, like you know a good night for surveying is a good night for animal trapping i would presume if it rains while you're eating dinner and it's nice and warm and then it stops raining you're going to catch a snake yeah um yeah, so an average trapper, this was interesting, is a man, this is your, if you if you have an archetypal trapper, it's a man, there were no women doing it, uh, aged 41, who's been in the game for 19 years. Um, mm. So it's kind of, yeah, the more, slightly more senior members of the um, society seem to be doing it. Um, they did mention some difficulties with the collection, um, sort of off-the-cuff comments included it being hard to find animals because of deforestation um also there being less animals i think they mentioned geckos um also they worry because they don't have the people collecting the animals don't hold the legal documentation to do the collection yeah this was um, a big this is a big one for me this is pure like god talk about a recipe for exploitation so you've got people you've got intermediaries coming in and asking people to find animals yeah. Uh, people go out, get the animals, then only get paid when they're transferring, giving the animals back to the intermediary, and they have the paperwork to say it was all done legitimately. 
like where's the there's abs- I mean one of the fears was this this idea of security as a business or as a livelihood source sorry you've got nothing you've got you've got this what's what's stopping anything from happening once you've got the animals and put in the effort and someone turning around no those ones aren't as good as this guy three villages over I'll buy his you'll get nothing this time I mean I presume there's like verbal agreements or something but there's no there's surely going to be no recourse if uh, someone backs out of a deal yeah seems very yeah they did yeah. mention it was they did mention it was unreliable um and sometimes people didn't pay and then when they do pay they're making um 70 american cents per hour for um, yeah. collecting reptiles and amphibians which doesn't sound like a lot but actually that still translates to being the most profitable activity per hour input um in these kind of rural uh, areas um Largely, I think they said because a lot of the crops are only really farmed for subsistence, so they're difficult to put a value on. So they're yes. not necessarily selling their crops; they're kind of eating what they produce. Um, but there but were yeah. a couple of crops that came close. You had pineapple crops that, over the year, would come close to that sort of level of income. There were things that were. It's it's not out and out the most profitable way of making money for sure. Cause no, because it's uh, also additional farm labour. Did uh, you got decent amounts of money over the entire year? Mm. So it's like a like a seasonal unreliable burst for animal trapping. Yeah, well, it was but about... presumably more consistent annual income for a pineapple farming yeah. or, or or farm labour. Well, it was making people about one hundred and five dollars per year when the average income is four hundred dollars a year. So. It's making people a quarter well, av- of the... That's average across the entire country, though, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're ne- making that much, but... Um, so I feel like of... that's a little bit of an unfair comparison because urban areas are going to bump that up, but really there isn't a $400 per year alternative in rural areas. Yeah, no, that's a fair comment. Um, so they did some investigation of how um, people felt about uh the the natural environment particularly um how trappers felt and whether or not they felt differently about it than people who didn't trap and what they found that was um more than 66 percent of people they surveyed thought that the amount of natural habitat in madagascar should be increased um 33 percent said no it's fine how it is keep it the same and one percent said it should be reduced but there wasn't a difference between trappers and non-trappers so they were kind of anticipating maybe trappers would have more of an appreciation for the conservation of wildlife given that they rely on it but as it turns out i mean i would say 66 percent of people wanting to increase the cover of natural habitat is really high i yeah that seems pretty decent to me yeah i mean there's obviously a really good attitude towards the natural environment i'd be really interested to hear what the results of a similar survey in the uk would be um and i wonder if people would be similarly keen for uh, we've got areas. A- yeah, we've got a funny thing in the in the UK though, because we think a lot of quote unquote natural areas are actually natural when they're not. They're sort of cultural landscapes that have been heavily, heavily modified and we've have such a long time detached from what actual natural is, I think that would quite heavily skew the same sort of study in the UK. Yeah, well, George Monbiot said it, didn't he? He was like, Wales uplands are a desert. <laughs> well, yeah, that sort of stuff, though. But how much, how aware, how aware are a lot of people of how unnatural some of those places are? 
or certain certain areas of them certainly yeah i mean to be honest i never really realized because you don't see real wild areas like have you ever been to an ancient woodland uh yeah once <laughs> somewhere yeah, in scotland like, <laughs> they're basically mythical for us yeah. to see something like that you know and we've talked about this on the podcast before like our wild areas are gone virtually right yeah so yeah it always feels a little well, bit our, our sort of yeah largely natural ones wild is another sort of thing because you can have a wild area that's heavily degraded mm. but well that's, that's, that's a definition, definition. Of wild. That's a, exactly like, that's a definition this is not wild <laughs> yeah yeah um close cropped grass pretty wild um, but, but yeah <laughs> that grass so, has yeah. gone feral <laughs> um right yeah so i mean the findings of this paper really it's undeniable that um collecting animals is a big contributor to the local economy in moramanga right would you agree um yeah, sort of i mean it it seems to be quite important for 13 percent of households but mm. to me that's relatively niche that's one in ten but I mean, if one in 10 people were doing something here, you'd think it was a big deal, right? Like one in 10 people might be uh, working in accounting or admin and you, you yeah. know, you'd say admin but is you, a big deal. You, you said yourself, it's it's a different economy. People have multiple livelihood sources. That's true. It's, it's That's not the true. same as just being in accounting means you are an accountant and you don't do another job. This is, <laughs> you're talking to people who do, what is it, on average six, seven different uh have six or seven different sources of income. The average for an in, the average for an individual was three, but um, okay. But a household, like it was six like six or seven, double that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I can't remember, but if you say so, yeah, it was like uh, it's basically people are doing multiple jobs, um, and then yes. and then at least for an individual, it's like three, which, like you say, is very unusual. Here, you know, people with three jobs, you'd be like, "Whoa, you've got three jobs? It's crazy." Um, yeah, so I think yeah. that's slightly skewing what we're how prominent it is yeah okay well let's not get too bogged but, down on that bec- like, yeah because of the money it does seem like quite a big deal for those people yeah yeah yeah, so. yeah. that's fair to say but like you said earlier i mean it's limited by things like supply chain uh animals are usually collected by to order and also um there's risk associated so we didn't mention it earlier on but um people say that their health they may find it difficult to do because their health it's obviously quite hard they have to often walk multiple days into forest to collect these animals. Um, also, the supply chains are unreliable. Sometimes people don't pay for what they collect. It's seasonal. And then there's quota restrictions to take into account. Um, I mean, we'd mm. probably both, well, this we'd, is... but we'd both probably this say is... rightly so with the quotas. But, um, oh, 100%. But yeah. I don't think that that's trickling down in the right way. Because, I mean, who's who's going to... If you're getting paid for it, you're getting paid for it. That's not where the quotas are. The quotas are set at national and international level. They're not. They're not meant for for local supply chain stuff. It's, it's no. a totally different scale. Yeah. So although that that's more uh, fluctuations in the market as opposed to actually the quotas, I feel like that's a step step beyond. Wait a minute. So what are you saying that? Um... I'm saying that the quotas changing might not directly influencing these guys on the ground because you've got this intermediary of what the market does. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So regardless yeah, so... of what the quotas does, it's filtered via market and demand. 
Sure. Yeah. So the middle, the middlemen who come and ask for yeah the animals exactly. to be collected are the only thing that the uh, local people go on. Yeah. yeah. Although I think some of the local people did mention, but no, no, I don't think they did actually. Yeah. No, I think it, it was, was all about it was all very much put. about orders and things like that. Which yes, yeah. they will be influenced by the quotas, but there's a lot between that and the quotas. Mm. So I, I to be honest with you, man, I feel like pretty underqualified to sort of comment on this kind of a paper. Um, oh yeah, hundred uh, percent. Holistically, <laughs> like a holistic end message. Like, is this is this trade? I mean, I just I don't know enough about the economy of Madagascar and kind of like the economies of developing nations and low income nations in general. Um, don't know what. Yeah, like I don't know how this compares. Like it, to me, I mean, these people are getting paid very little and it kind of pangs of exploitation. But then you look at what they're making elsewhere and it's relative. But then I was reading recently, apparently Maersk, you know, the massive um, shipping giant, uh, they mm. employ a lot of Filipino people and um, generally only pay them about 50% of the wages that they pay their European employees, despite the fact they're doing the same job. And they justify it because they say, you know, oh, they're, um, they're from a different economy. And when they get back, they're still super wealthy relative to their peers. Right. And it's, like that's that's hard for me to ally with because it just seems fundamentally unfair. Right. So this is why I brought up that quote from the Duffy paper because it talks about what is actually the real issue here, and it's a lack of power, a lack of voice, and an inability to shape one's future. Yeah. That is is slap bang there. It almost doesn't matter what how it is relative. It's how much control do the people there have on their own livelihoods. That's yeah. what actually matters. Yeah, like but the, like opinion is is neither here nor there. Yeah, but this is it. Yeah, I'm just conscious of coming across like really preachy because I'm really ignorant of the topic. Well, I think it's I think it's that you don't need to be preachy. All people sort of need at the end of the day is a little bit of power to define their own futures. That's mm. is that preachy? Maybe I don't know. I if it is, then people are going to have to swallow it because you <laughs> be telling yeah. people how to live their lives. <laughs> That's yeah. that's the point, right? Yeah. Cool. Well, I'll... yeah, I think that gives a sort of brief overview of the trade insofar as it affects people in this very small region of Madagascar. Um, you know, can't probably extrapolate the results to the rest of the country, um, but at least for Moramanga, um, that's kind of what's going on. Hopefully uh, gives people mm. an insight. Certainly gave me an insight. I thought it was a really interesting paper. Um, yeah. Just, yeah, well, it's uh, cool being it's cool it's cool being aware of the context on the ground, isn't it? It is. That's, yeah, it really. That's is. actually the biggest value here. Is exactly how I say it's not about uh, telling people what's the right way of doing things. It's looking at the situation and understanding the situation, and hopefully deriving some sort of like, oh, if I do this, things might improve, or mm. not, or vice versa, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, um, well, so that's that's the kind of collection side, at least for a very small portion of the world. Um, so now should we move on to one of the problems with um, the pets once they get to their destination? Although mm, pet, pet problems, would you say? Pet problems. Yeah. Pet problems. Biological and economic factors that influence the release of alien reptiles and amphibians by pet owners in the Journal of Applied Ecology by mm. Stringham and Lockwood in 2018. That's paper yeah. two. 
So this paper's the other side of it. People have got pets now. Um, obviously, a lot of these pets are captive bred. They're not. The vast majority aren't coming from the wild. But you know, it's still kind of a logical onward step. So the point of this one is they were trying to find out um, whether or not there were um, predicting factors which made alien species more likely to be released by pet owners. So to put it all in context... Um, well, perhaps, yeah, you sort of make it sound like uh, there's some sort of agency on the part of the pet <laughs> But some of these, they are very much talking about things getting out because they want to get out. And pet yeah. owners are not planning it whatsoever, and it's a complete accident. I mean, but yeah, it I... happens and therefore needs to be examined, right? Mate, I mean, I keep snakes, and for the first... Uh, how old was I when the last one escaped? I mean, I was living alone, <laughs> so I was an adult, and they still managed to outsmart me. Um, yeah, they do get out. Uh, so yeah, I mean, 15 years of snake keeping and one escaped. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty damn sneaky. Um, mm. I mean, all it takes is a leftover tank by mistake, and uh, yeah, they're out. And that's obviously not taking into account the fact, well, the reality that most snakes that are in the wild as a result of the pet trade have been released on purpose i would argue like i think it's probably not just escape i mean i guess there is probably there's probably large-scale releases like there's one of the theories isn't it that introduced burmese pythons is that there was a breeding facility that got hit by a hit by a hurricane and um they all got out that way that's they got sucked up by the hurricane and then they rained down across florida (laughs) snake rain (laughs) sounds amazing um but obviously negative if you're of a native environment. Uh, so yeah, essentially, um, I think all of our listeners will be aware that like there's loads of exotic pets. Um, many people probably keep them themselves. And um, there's a wide variety of species. Uh, obviously, this paper is um, just reptiles and amphibians. So there's like, you know, a whole host of turtles, tortoises, lizards, snakes, frogs, salamanders. And specifically the states too. Yeah, this mentioning. is specific. Yeah, this is yeah. specific to the States. So the way they collected their data on the uh, sort of sources of um, introduced individuals, they first will use the Krauss database, which is something I've used myself, is an awesome resource. So Krauss compiled this compendium of um, introduced reptiles and amphibians. And uh, when you get the book, it comes with this massive Excel spreadsheet of all the introductions that have happened. It's really cool. So they looked at all of those from the States. And then um, the other thing that they did was to look at this online um, sort of community science um, database called, what was it called? What was it called? Oh, Lemis. No, that's not right. Uh... It's basically Fish and Wildlife's border records. Right? Yeah. No, no, no. They Because they used that, but then they also used... Hang on. LEMIS, Law Enforcement Management Information System from the US Fish and Wildlife Service. Oh. Yeah? That's for the species coming in and out of the US. Oh. I had in my head that they were using something called the... Uh... Hang on. Sorry. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. No, but they also added data from um, EDD maps, which is the citizen science effort to provide data on alien species. So basically, if people see an animal which shouldn't be there, they can put it on EDD maps. And um, yeah, they use that to get more recent data. So that went up to 2016. Basically, if someone in America sees like a boa constrictor or, you know, any kind of, you know, an iguana running around, they can go on this website or this, I would imagine there's probably an app, I don't know. And then they can just say, you know, hey, I saw this here and it adds to the database. So they added that to their data as well, um, which I so thought was quite cool. So you've had you've had a look at these databases at various points, right? I've I know the Kraus one inside out. I've never seen EDD so maps before. I've got you'd plans be able to, to tell me the most uh, <laughs> most regions invaded by a squamate and what that squamate is. Yeah, it was seventy two by Indotyphlops brahminus. Oh, I've got eighty three by this paper. He's oh, spread really? since <laughs> spread spread since two thousand and nine. Uh, well, yeah, I've got a. Uh, Capina et al. paper here. What about really? uh, what? What about amphibians? Who's the uh, top offender there? Oh gosh. Mm, so is it? Uh, so the obvious answer is the Kainto, but I don't think that's uh, right. That's second place. Is it? Is it? Um, yeah. Xenopus. No, where's Xenopus? Xenopus is fourth place for amphibians. Fourth place. Okay, Invaded are... 12 different regions. Um, oh, okay, so it's going to be a frog. No, oh, is it... It's going to be a frog. Is it a bullfrog? Is it the bull... American bullfrog? Uh, what's the Latin for American bullfrog? Um, I want to say like Rana Catespiana. Oh, probably... has it been has it been changed to Lithobates, uh Caspianus? Yes, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just going to quickly look it up. American bullfrog. Yes, nicely yeah. done. Yeah. Oh man, I'm happy with that. Yeah, I see. I'm glad I knew that day. I spent long enough staring at it. Fifty nine um, regions invaded, and I'm, I mean, you can easily guess which region has been invaded the most by uh, reptiles and amphibians, right? America. Well, it's more specific than that. You can give me a state. Florida. <laughs> yeah. And then Hawaii. Yeah. And then California. Mate, the thing yeah. is, though, these That's are places. I think it's really, like, yeah. I mean, I think it is also um, obviously, like, fundamentally harsh to blame just pet owners. Because those places are, I mean, it's it's people who, I mean, I'm, I don't know about Hawaii for definite, but. The first imports of chame- of Jackson's chameleons were in like the nineties to pet shops, and then mm. they they just you know now they're everywhere. And like ranching is a definite um, influence too, isn't it? I mean, we talked about this on the podcast before. This like mystery of ranching where people let animals go with the intention of them breeding in the wild and then being able to be collected. So it's basically like cattle ranching where they just kind of roam around, except for with chameleons. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they worth mentioning that. chameleons. Yeah, they do. They cruise. They cruise forage all over the damn place, and then go and just pick them out of the trees and sell them. I mean, it's but a very, very, very clever way of making money, but it's just extremely unscrupulous. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I don't know. I don't know. It, the other, the bit that, well, I think was most interesting with this paper, um, was all the sort of 
invasions and things is disproportionately uh, invading places with high GDP, high uh, average GDP per capita. Oh, yeah. I mean, we said that, that earlier on, was, didn't we? That's the flow. That's the flow. Exactly. Exactly. But that's just such a... It's so clear in this paper that that's what's happening. They've got these nice heat maps of the world and it is very much... You go north of north of the equator and things start getting darker with more species invading. Um, yeah. You head south and it's it's not as dramatic. Although there's a few serious hotspots on some islands. It's, uh, it's a pretty damn clear pattern. But of course, that's the places buying them. Yeah, absolutely. You need money to buy pets. You do indeed, yeah. Pets are a luxury. Um, that being so, said, yeah, we haven't... Chubby frog for ten quid, bloody bar. <laughs> um, I prefer them to be called painted frogs. Yeah, uh, I think we all do. But chubby frog is. Still... <laughs> I can't get over that. I can't get over that. That's a like legitimate term people are using to describe an entire species of frog. <laughs> Read a fascinating paper about those once. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Um, Never anyway, believe so... what they get up to out there. I know. So, uh, inside joke, great for podcasting. So, um, yeah, like, what we haven't actually really discussed what they were looking at. So, the idea behind this paper was they were trying to find out if there were certain predictors which would mean that reptiles and amphibians from the pet trade were more likely to end up in the wild. Um, so, they were looking at things like if they get humongous, are they more likely to end up in the wild? If they live for a long time, are they more likely to end up in the wild? If there's a big difference between the size when they're sold and the size they get to, are they more likely to end up in the wild? Um, and kind of a mis- a sort of mashup of all of these uh, Yeah, you variables. had things like quant- quantity imported, price, how long they've been on the market, like other, not just species trait stuff, but uh, marketplace trait stuff. Yeah. There's very much two things going on here. You've got animals and you've got how the market interacts with them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Look, the the animal one has been looked in quite decent detail from a different perspective with invasive species, where you look at, okay, what traits do these animals have that lend themselves to being introduced to a new area? But these guys are looking at the sort of intermediary step there of, well, first they have to get into that new area, and one of the pathways is via the pet trade. How likely do those traits make that pathway? You know, how, how feasible is that for them to get out and establish? Hmm. You, you know, every step of the way has uh, a sort of probability of success associated with it. What we were saying before, you can't look at these situations and fully understand what's happening if you're looking at one aspect. These are, these are global uh, scenarios, mechanisms... Yeah. Oh my! It, I really am having a bad word day. Um, well, it's not just that, is it? As well, like it's really networks, hard. Pathways. It, it's all connected. Is my point. And you've got to look at each scale and each step of the process. You, it's you a way. Follow the step of the process. You're going to be looking at spurious connections. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and also you're trying to take into account like humans and what they do, and they're, we're unpredictable. Exactly. Um, so well, we're animals about... are unpredictable. How you keeping them unpredictable? The climate. Yeah. You got heterogeneity. You got, you know, how do they? How well do they fit into a niche? You got how open that niche is. You've got other species competition in the new ecosystem. Mm. There is an unbelievable wealth of complexity to 
trying to deal with invasives and predicting invasives. Yeah, I mean, that is... Even. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the reality for the majority of released pets. They're just, like, comically maladapted and they end up suffering and dying. Um, well, exactly that, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, like, obviously everyone knows releasing pets is bad. <clears throat> um, but, yeah, we'll talk about the uh, the numbers... So um, they recorded 1,722 species um, either on websites for sale or on that um, the database Lemons. from Florida Fish and Wildlife for imports. Um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Oh, is it U.S.? Sorry, my bad. Um, yeah. Well, it says U.S. Uh, I don't know if it's specifically Florida. Um, I don't think I don't I don't I don't know I don't, I don't think they're doing just Florida, but nope. a lot of papers do, but not this one. So um, yeah. Lizards, there was most lizards, 739 species, followed by snakes, 490 species. Um, Over half had been available on the market for more than five years. No, sorry, for less than five years. So this is an evolving trade. Um, Mm. While 10% were available for the full duration of this analysis. So it's kind of this fluxing trade. And I think that probably reflects... um, the kind of fickle nature of people, as much as anything. Um, well, and like I, I was mean, saying, with the with the with the sort of fashion stuff, demand yeah, that's can it. increase decrease on the these weird trends that come out of nowhere. Yeah, a yeah. comment from a politician or, or whatever. Yeah, well, like seeing it. a cool animal in a movie. Who knows what actually drives that stuff? And that would be um, something cool to look at. Yeah, that's actually a good good point. Um, it would be cool, uh, like Nemo, for example. Um, I was thinking the film Anaconda, but yeah, sure. Mate, if Anaconda <laughs> makes you want to get a Panaconda, you've got a screw loose. They... Yeah, because you look up, do Anacondas really look like that with weird faces and making <laughs> like cobra hissing noises? Like, no, they're adorable. Yeah, they are adorable. They're funny little people. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Anaconda, yeah. Maybe it did. It probably did increase the demand for Anacondas, actually. Yeah, snakes uh, on a plane? Oh, yeah. Madagascar hog noses were bought up by the by the dozens, I tell you. Yeah, but they so they um, looked at all these variables, and what they found was um, if there's more imported, if they live a long time, and if they have high reproductive output, and if they've been on the market for a long time, then they're more likely to be released. Whereas if they get more expensive, they're less likely to be released. Mm. And the biggest species have the higher released have that well, bigger species are more likely to be released than smaller ones, which you know I mean it all all of that stuff is kind of exactly what you'd expect if you guessed right. Like people aren't going to just let go of things which are expensive, things which get big become unmanageable and they get released. Um, and if something produces loads of babies, the markets can be flooded and they're going to be more likely to be released. I mean these are like basic ideas I would say, um, but you know yeah. they've all kind of proved to be the um the adult mass has an interesting relationship though because it's actually also no i mean in in terms of just it by itself because smaller species were also more likely to be released so there was a very sort of gentle u shape but with a very very sharp increase when it hits i think around sort of 10 kilograms ish right maybe inside the mindset a little bit less than that maybe five five ten kilograms you know, yeah. it makes a lot exactly. It makes a lot of sense because you're dealing with suddenly an animal that's gotten way bigger, and there's a big difference between having a hundred gram little lizard and a five kilogram lizard. 
Yeah. And also, though, it doesn't really seem like a big deal to let something go that's small. <laughs> just like, what's it going to do? It's little. <laughs> just like, you know, like, you know, when you just get bored of your goldfish and you just sling it in a pond, you don't think anything of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, ride, boring little water ride, ride past go. on your bike and just lob it <laughs> see you later mate sorry Nemo you're boring um, I'm getting myself a giant anaconda <laughs> I've seen anaconda and I want an anaconda now anacondas are badass they can eat people from the trees yeah woohoo um, but no the point remains like an anole for example would be a classic case where it's like this little brown lizard you get it as a pet, it's super cheap, and it turns out to be kind of boring, it doesn't do a lot. And you're like, hmm, what can I do? This animal's going to live, I don't know how long they live. It, I could be being ignorant, but lots of little lizards live a long time. Anyway, so you just think, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to let it go in the bushes behind my house, it can go around, it'll probably be alright. Anyway, there we go, invasive species, the brown animal takes over Florida. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you can empathise with people, I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess it's like... If there's a commonality in people's behavior, it's going to be easy to identify with anyway, isn't it? Because we're people as well. So it's like, yeah, giant snakes are, are a pain to look after after a while. And they're a big yeah. commitment. You know, eat your dog if you're not careful. Then, well, can't keep it. It's eating the family dog. Just got to go. Surprisingly few instances of that actually happening, though. I don't know of any. Well, no, because people were embarrassed and they cover it up. Monty ate the dog. My secret shame. <laughs> Off into the forest now. <laughs> See you, mate. <laughs> yeah, that would be awkward, wouldn't it? Oh, like, don't get me wrong, snake is cool, but you're gonna prefer dog. Dog's got more character. That's probably not true for everyone, but. Well, yeah, but if the snake eats the dog, it gains its character. <laughs> Absorbs it. Ah, just start calling the dog Rover. You mean the snake Rover? Well, the, the snake the is dog the dog then. Called... <laughs> the oh. snake is... No, yeah, I meant to say the snake. Um, anyway, hijinks aside, um, the other thing is that adult mass and price interact. So that low price plus large mass. So cheap, cheap, <laughs> Recipe big, big for disaster. Equals bad, bad. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, Burmese pythons are probably the perfect example of that. I mean, they are incredibly um, reproductively potent. You know, the one at the Welsh Mountain Zoo recently laid 107 eggs. Um, yeah. If you've got 107 baby Burmese pythons, that's a lot of people that need to want a Burmese python. Um, so... Mm. I mean, they freeze the eggs at the zoo, and I imagine a lot of people do the same thing and maybe just keep some, which is probably a better solution. But, like, 107 baby Burmese pythons, even if even if a small percentage of those people realise when it gets to 14 feet that it's a real pain in the ass, then, um, yeah, that's a, that's a bad situation. People, yeah. It is, and when you've got this, this natural market force to drive down prices and get as many people to buy things as possible... In addition to the the whole, I was thinking of it like um, like the car industry. You know, you had mm. everybody had a had a had a Model T, right? And it's all just generic Model Ts, and like, well, everybody's got one now. We can't sell any more. Well, I remember well, when Model you... Ts came out. They were oh, all yeah. the rage. All the rage. You yeah, had the gangsters. You were nobody without a Model T. <laughs> Everyone was having one. Al Capone looked like a boss. Driving around. Well, yeah, but then then you've got everybody's got Model Ts, right? And how do you how do you get people to buy more stuff? Well, you segment the market, don't you? And you start putting fins on them. You start giving different colours, and you get a diff- 
da 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 but that's just natural market evolution. No one's particularly <laughs> to blame for that, apart from it as a everybody's agreeing to play along. I mean, how many types of shampoo are there out there? Mate, at least four. I've seen four. Um, how many types of shampoo do you use? Me personally. Yeah. Uh, one. Ah, see, there you go. There's... Maya's got me on the shampoo bars, you know, the plastic free ones. Oh, nice. It's a bit of a pain, though. You have to kind of, like, mash it against your head for ages. <laughs> we'll get you off point. The point is that you can't trust markets to do things that <laughs> are environmentally... Uh, I was going to say sustainable, but that might not be quite right. Mm. Just sort of yeah, in keeping with capacity, perhaps. One of the best things you can do is tell people the whole situation and try and connect X to Y and have people make their own decisions. Mm, yeah. Because there's, there's nothing inherently wrong here, really, but when it goes to certain extremes, then it becomes pretty odd and weird, doesn't it? It starts going beyond certain uh, environmental capacities. Yeah. Car- yeah, carrying yeah. capacities. Yeah. I guess when you like overly commodify anything, it's, the bottom rung becomes worthless, and that's really dangerous. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's all I'm getting at. It's more. It's, yeah. I'm not. I don't want to point yeah. my finger at people. I'm more pointing the finger at how things tend to go. Yeah. One thing I should mention. I said 107 eggs for a Burmese python. That is actually like extraordinary. <laughs> Just before, because I know someone will probably comment on that. Like, yeah, and I know it's extraordinary. Yeah, that's very unusual. But um, this was a huge it's... snake. In fairness, the snake's like 18 feet long, so fit a lot of eggs in it. She's a brute. Yeah. And she's not a very friendly brood either. She's quite a cantankerous beast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would be too if I had to lay that many eggs. Damn. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Chickens, one a day. They, they've they got it worked out. Although maybe that's worse. Maybe it'd be better to lay 100 eggs every year once rather than... Well, Who I mean, knows? chickens don't nat- aren't naturally meant to lay an egg a day, are they? What? Yeah, they are. Of course they are. Evolution. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's, not, that's not how that works mate have you seen the photos of a chicken's oviduct where it's like it's mental there's like one egg in there and then there's like a slightly smaller egg and then there's another slightly smaller egg it's like almost like russian dolls but with eggs and obviously they're not inside each other so it's very little not really like russian dolls at all but it's interesting <laughs> to see anyway <laughs> yeah whatever you say mate just look it up all right ben then you'll see what i mean hey so um uh anyway take home paper take home message of this paper um big things most concerning big things which are um, lots of them big things lots of double bad yeah um yeah cheap uh, cheap big things that there's lots of them yeah that's the worst that's the worst yeah um but also little things which seem pointless and small just sneaky yeah insidious um yeah, but again, another really interesting paper, um, which, mm. to my shame, I actually hadn't discovered. So, yeah, very relevant to what I'm doing. Very interesting. I think, yeah, I just wanted to, to round off on a couple of their points at the end, which I think brings this all nicely back around, is that they're calling for better information for consumers at like point of purchase, things like that, so people aren't buying animals that they can't take care of in 20 years or whatever which is super, super valuable. 
but also better situations for if people do get in a scenario that they can't uh, can't take care of these pets is you need better animal rescue places yeah yeah it's the same as any any industry isn't it like a lot of what we do as consumers is so like willfully irresponsible we just apathy is just too easy Um, when it doesn't take very much apathy for it to have a bad impact that's that's the trick it's true yeah it's true so a lot of a lot of it's done very well most of it's yeah like the out the outcry about much the outcry about palm oil recently, which, I mean, from my perspective, has been slightly, um, maybe not misguided, because that's not fair. Like, people want to care about stuff, and that's awesome. But, like, the whole palm oil thing, I mean, from what I can tell, it seems like now sustainable palm oil is the best alternative rather than just boycotting palm oil. But, you know, with this outcry on Facebook about palm oil, it's like everyone shared that video. And then I walk around town, everyone's eating a Mars bar. <laughs> like, <laughs> the hypocrisy. <laughs> the hypocrisy is like so, yeah, just, yeah, anyway, that's. Well, that's what I'm saying with the. With I think the it's an extension of that, stuff. isn't it? It's, like, it is, uh, people can just, yeah. It's easy for people to just be dicks, and people will. Anyway, like, that doesn't, as you say, that doesn't reflect necessarily the majority of people. Like, it only no, takes a few imbeciles to ruin it for everyone. No, and again, the the odds, the the game is rigged against you. Oh yeah, the game is, game rigged, is rigged for by this by this thing sort of stuff. That's the thing, yeah. Calling people imbeciles is so counterproductive. I, I regret saying that because it's like nothing. No one, no one who releases their pet is like, oh, this is great. I'm releasing my pet. I'm doing the right thing. They've been driven to that by having made a bad decision. Perhaps they were ill informed, and it's a desperate move. It's not like a. Yeah. I'm going to do this. It's not a malicious Obviously, move. with the exception of ranching, which is, like, really yeah. cynical and, like, super, super unscrupulous. Um, but, yeah, most people are just like, oh, man, you know. Sorry, Nemo. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, um, so yeah, like, okay. I think um, with that, I think we've we, I think we've done that paper justice, and I think, uh, yeah. I we've think kind we've of... covered a lot of spurious discussion about Petroid stuff. Yeah, we're not... Yeah, who are we? We're just talking. But um, yeah, interesting nonetheless. And I think it's a cool paper. And I'm glad it's come out. And I think it's a, it's a good um, discussion starter. And hopefully, you know, it'll I have some positive effects. I think so. I think at the end of the day, regardless of what you think of what we've said, the point is to consider it, as in the pet trade, as a thing and a market force and consider the impacts. That's all that really really matters you disagree with absolutely everything said and think we're talking spurious nonsense especially what i've been saying but that's not a problem and say so i don't i don't want to be telling anybody answers here i just want to right at the very beginning you just want people to have at least information to make an informed decision i think that's absolutely key yeah 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 so with that behind us Let's move on to the species of the bi week. Oh, now, yes. <laughs> now we picked this species for our friend Sammy Assad, didn't we? We did. We thought we'd Be- do him, do him a solid and pick a species from a part of the world that he's very fond of yeah so we're in borneo 
And the species of the bi-week paper is Pui, Karen, Bauer and Das 2017, a new species of Tropidophorus from Sarawak, East Malaysia, Borneo, published in Zootaxa, the go-to for new species descriptions. Um, yep. Excuse me. Uh, yes, yeah, so we're in Sarawak, East Malaysian Borneo. Um, and we're looking at a member of the family Skinkidae. Now, oh, I had a little gecko chime up behind you there, Ben. Yeah, someone's um, getting leery outside. Is that what they up to? <laughs> Crazy geckos. Um, yeah, so these are unusual because they love water. Most skinks hate water. Hate it. They can't abide it. But these skinks, no. oh boy. Can't be seen can't in the same room, is it? No, they won't even drink it. Um. <laughs> well, 100% of skinks that drink water die. <laughs> that is a fact. You can take that one to the bank. So, uh, yeah, the genus Tropidophorus. Tropidophorus. That's a fun genus. Hard to say at first, but then once you get your sort of mouth around it. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, I like mm. anything that starts with trop. I don't actually know what tropidophorus means. Um, but Tropical up to... flame. Is it really? No, but it sounds like it, oh, would be... man. it could be, right? Yeah. Ooh, spicy. So, um, yeah, 28 species up till now. Um, now there's 29, obviously, because we're talking about a new species. This is a species by week. Do it. Get on board. So, um, yeah. Uh, this new species, it, well, it's got a few characters which make it unique, which made me laugh. <laughs> um, one of them is it's got no palatine teeth. Okay, that's cool. So there's no teeth on top of the ta- the mouth, which is uh, you know the gummy skink. Yeah. Well, palatine is like the bit on the roof of the mouth, right? Like we talked about it in the boas. Oh right. Um, so it still has its regular teeth, just no yeah. additional. Obviously. Teeth. It's- it's got teeth, Ben. It's a predator. <laughs> it's not got a beak. Uh, anyway, you it's can also... still be a predator without teeth. <laughs> Listen to this: limbs and eyelids, well developed and movable. <laughs> oh, nice. That's a good start. It's useful. <laughs> <laughs> they're not movable. They're just they're just trapped shut. <laughs> Lim- limbs, limbs, purely ornamental. <laughs> well, to be fair, you could say that with pythons, couldn't you? Yeah, true. Yeah, they're little spurs. I don't know. They people think they use them for tiggling, but um, yeah, I don't know. And uh, the lower <laughs> eyelid. Limbs. Guess how they guess how they describe the lower eyelid? Um, stylish. <laughs> no, scaly. It's a scaly one. Oh, scaly. So they, it's a scaly lower eyelid. So if you see a little skink and it seems to be enjoying the water, it doesn't have any palatine teeth, and it's got a scaly eyelid. <laughs> Yeah, you found the right skink. Um, yeah, but joking aside, um, basically they the authors were uh, surveying a new region in uh, Malaysian Borneo that hadn't been surveyed before, um, and yeah, they came across this cool skink, and uh, it turned out to be a new species. They did some genetic work, um, and yeah, it was it's it's new, it's unique. It's about 85 millimetres long. They only caught two specimens and they're both females. So um, no adult males. No males as far as I can tell. Um, There's only one holotype. So yeah, no males have been discovered yet. So the males are a mystery. But the females have been used to describe the species. And should we talk about what it looks like? I think you meant paratype, but yeah. 
no, no. There's a paratype and there's one holotype. So there's two in total. I thought you only ever had one holotype because that's the first one. And then paratypes are... Mm, you're right. I got it the wrong way around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My bad. Yeah, no, you're okay. exactly spot on. Yeah. Um, I stand corrected. So, uh, yeah, what does it look like? How would you describe it in three words? Um, in three words, that's really difficult. Because one yeah. of those words has to be skink. <laughs> no, uh, it doesn't. It's a given that it's a skink. We're talking about it. Oh, right. Okay. Um, given, okay, here's this, Ben. Given the preamble that I've already given this skink. Oh, right. Describe it in three words. And also, you do not have to mention the scaly eyelid, because that would be two of your words. And we know now that it has a scaly eyelid. Which obviously okay, is one of the I'd main. say um, chocolate, mm. nougat, <laughs> orange. Right on. What I'm what I'm picturing is if you if you take a like a Mars bar or a Snickers or any other brand of nuggety nougat-y based chocolate product and chop the sides off of the chocolate and you get that, ah. that pale colour and then on the top you get chocolate on the bottom you get chocolate but along the side you get this sort of mm, textured pale paleness also throwing a few little orange dots and you've got your skin yes yes that's a perfect yeah? description yeah yeah it's um it does look delicious uh <laughs> yeah if I it mean, was in Harry Potter, it would be animated and be eaten by children. Yeah, and it would speak parcel tongue. Possibly. Despite being a lizard. Uh, but yeah, so one thing Depends I noticed... It's a squamate trait, yeah. Hmm. It's never really what? explored. True. You, pre- you presume it's a squamate trait because the basilisk clearly isn't a snake. So you think uh, parcel tongue is ancestral to squamates? Yeah, probably. It's an interesting theory. I wonder if it's been lost by anything. If it was going to get lost by anything, it would get lost by um, maybe geckos. They don't seem like they'd be good at other languages. Yeah, they're not, they're not sociable, right? Well, they, they chirp at each other, actually. I can hear them chirping in the background. Oh, well, maybe that's it. They've, they've ditched the parcel tongue for gecko-specific languages. Mm. One thing I notice about this skink is that the front legs are much smaller than the back legs. There's a mismatch there. Um <laughs> It's got it's all, very... it's all leg day, no arm day. Yeah, that's it. Uh, yeah, so the front of it, it looks like it would be well equipped to kind of like stream around. And um, oh, the habitat photo, wasn't it beautiful? Mm. Except for the pipes. The pipes are a bit off. There's some black pipes, which are almost certainly man-made. I've never seen any kind of root structure be that spherical. Oh, they look like... good. Aren't they just licorice roots? licorice roots maybe yeah you chop them down and you get that's how they make the all sorts Uh, oh that's why those the little circular ones come from i was really hungry the other day and my friend owen had a pack (laughs) of licorice all sorts and oh god you know owen but literally they are the lowest common denominator of sweets (laughs) they're not even fun to eat i hate them i think why is it that they taste so sour aniseed is not a flavor for sweets it's a flavor to cover up alcohol yeah and some of them are so ridiculously licorice It's like, what? Some of them are okay. They're like vaguely palatable because they cover it in like sugary stuff. And the licorice is just like a, an aftertaste you can mostly ignore. But other ones, like the black pipes? oh, They're the ones I'm talking about, the black pipes. This is oh, what we've they're... got in the deep forests of Borneo. The hell? 
Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Anyway, heaven forbid. Don't go chewing on those pipes. But otherwise, it looks really nice. It's like this lush green little stream with like funnel trap in the background. You being serious? Yeah, yeah. The green thing on the right hand side is that not a two tier funnel trap? Oh yeah, for bugs. Well, no, I would have thought for skinks. How would a skink get caught in that? It's, It's completely vertical. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm presuming it's not set up like that. You can oh, just I see. put it up there because I've just taken the skin or something. <laughs> it's hung up to dry. Yeah, um, maybe. I see. Yeah, no, you're probably right. Yeah. Maybe but an yeah. arboreal skink. Maybe. Um, <laughs> anyway, we're getting off topic. So it's a new skink um, and it's really cool. And it's now the 29th species in the genus Trypidophorus, sister species to Trypidophorus beckeri. Oh, and the etymology we haven't done. We haven't even said its name. Oh. No. <laughs> Sorry. It's called um, Trypidophorus... Where even is it? What is Sebi. It? Be- Sebi. 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 Trypidophorus Sebi. Mm. Named after the acronym SEB for the Sarawak Any- Energy <laughs> Burhad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like oh, it's a man. it's a little bit weak naming it after an organization, but whatever. This organization has done decent support for long term research of her pet fauna in the region. So, like, each to their own, I guess. Yeah, a little bit of greenwashing extending to the naming of a species—that's cool. Yeah, I mean, it's not the first time, and I'm sure it won't be the last. And it's not really no. greenwashing if they are genuinely supporting long-term hyperfauna well, research. <laughs> well, yeah, but something which is an energy company, I can't. I can imagine they're doing this to offset some terrible evils. But uh, you know, I'm just a cynic. I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to yeah. bash them. Maybe they're a renewable energy company. I don't know. So. Yeah. I mean, what we look at is commodification of animal naming. Is it? I don't know. Yeah. Well. Hmm, like There's an say, argument there. Difficult. Yeah, it is difficult. Um, obviously, we are. Generally, sort of jokingly opposed to stuff like this, but yeah, it, if it gets the research done, fair enough. Thanks. Uh, we get to read about it, so and we get to see a photo of it, and uh, yeah, make jokes about its appendages. So, <laughs> so really, really, it's all fine. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention: there's three lines about the ecology of the species. Uh, I've more or less described the river. Anyway, we have collectively. Um, it's collected from narrow crevices of rocky banks of small streams at the headwaters of Sungai Bale. Uh, it's only known from the type locality. Classic skink, living yeah. in they, wet rocks. And they give very good information about where you can find it, <laughs> for better or for worse. <sighs> Not going to discuss that problem again. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there we go. Um, great new species. Happy days. Um that's it. That's the pet trade episode. I think I've got so. Some, I've got some other business. You've got some other business, have you? Yes. Um, have you got any other business? Do you want me to go first? Uh, I do not have any other business this week. No business from you. Okay, cool. So here are the other so. businesses. <laughs> so uh, yeah, there's a new podcast called Conservation Chronicles. Um, it's really entertaining and it's conservation focused. Uh, every episode there's an episode every sort of 
few weeks. Um, there's not like a set schedule as far as I can see. But yeah, they do. They just talk about conservation of species. There's like tips on how you can live more sustainably, stuff like that. So yeah, give them a listen. Um, check them out. Well worth it. Um, hmm. Jonah and Mariana present that. Maybe it's Mariana. Yeah, I think that's a. Sorry if I butchered your name, Mariana. Um, but yeah, good stuff. And uh, what else have we got on the any other business? Oh, they've got three episodes all about poaching and the wildlife trade. That would be appropriate. Yeah, there you go. Go there and listen to more if you want to listen to more about it. Learn more uh, about CITES. They've got show notes. Yeah, they got the whole they got the whole shebang. And uh, oh, they goodness. obviously were the same blog as us because they released three episodes on the same day initially. <laughs> <laughs> that's just, um, that's just uh, good launch etiquette. That's just good. Yeah, that's just good practice. The uh, second thing I wanted to mention, which I should have mentioned last time, but I forgot, is uh, Winter Crockfest. Um, so we plugged Crockfest last time. It looks like it was great. Um, basically, it's a big get-together fundraising activity for crocodile and alligator conservation. Um, this one is at Gatorama, which is an alligator farm and visitor attraction in Palmdale, Florida. And it's Gatorama. on December... Yeah, Gatorama. And it's on December the 8th. So if you're in the area on December the 8th and you want to go and meet a bunch of cool people who like talking about alligators and crocodiles, then head over. Um, it should be great. Uh, I said last time there's a potential you might be able to touch an alligator. I don't know if that's the case. No promises, but it might be pretty sweet if you can. So, yeah, um, that would be cool to go to. But obviously not an option for me and you. There's no alligators here. Uh, no, I mean, I suppose technically I should be. No, not alligators. Crocodiles. Yeah, supposedly. I mean, but not anymore, really. Well, we know how much trouble the Siamese crocodiles in because we covered it like two episodes ago. Yeah, episodes exactly. Ago. And I've seen um, the only Siamese crocodile in this area, so. Yeah, so have I. Lone, <laughs> the Lone Ranger. So, um, the Lone Ranger. The other thing I wanted to mention was this episode was for Sammy. There's a really good video which we plugged on the podcast before. Sammy did like this uh, science slam thing about his research. So I'll leave the video link in the description. Um, it's all about deforestation and frogs it's really entertaining um the other thing is oh yeah um if you would be so kind if you like the podcast to leave us a review somewhere on itunes or on facebook it'd be really helpful help us to reach more people um we haven't asked you to do that for a while so it would be grateful if you could uh, we like reading them as long as they're nice ones if you don't like the podcast well you presume Fine. that they wouldn't have got to this stage of the podcast, right? Yeah, that's true. They wouldn't have heard this bit. Surely not. They'd have got, they'd have lost interest long before. So, as soon yeah. as I started, anyway. yeah, talking about how skinks look like Mars bars, uh, mate, these guys. <laughs> It'd be a miracle if they got that far. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I think that's about it. That rounds it off. Um, if you've got nothing else I... to add, then, in the interest of brevity. No, I think the only things left to say is if you want a podcast done on a certain topic, jump over to the Patreon and uh, help support the show and we'll be willing to do even ones that we would be too scared to do ordinarily. Because, oh boy, we would have not even ventured close to the pet trade otherwise. Because this yeah. is a minefield of stuff and I'm sure if I've gotten through without offending anybody, it's been a miracle. Um, and I'm almost positive that I haven't. Such is life. So, um, yeah, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, herphighlights at gmail.com is direct email. 
Uh, we're also on facebook.com slash herphighlights and you can get us on Twitter at herphighlights. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. like say at the end of that again like just uh, not even not even close <laughs> <laughs> just uh <laughs> i dropped um... the ball there so bad i was like oh